Uh, I, I enjoy coming here on Sundays and worshiping with you. Amen? Oh, that's good. Oh. <laughs> that's a good thing Shirley says. <laughs> well, I hope that applause was not just for me, but do you enjoy being here? Amen. Uh, so, the, we are looking at that passage that Bart read. So we are carrying on in Acts. And uh, just as a little reminder what we're doing, why we're here, we're in, in Acts is we are looking to at the first Christians, the first disciples, the first church, and the, uh, how they fulfilled the mission that Jesus gave them, how they fulfilled this mission of proclaiming the kingdom of God through the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we want to apply that that mission is our mission and it's still going on. And so that's why we're looking at Acts. And so um, we've been using our, our theme verse. Say it with me if you got it memorized. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Amen. And that's what we've seen, right? That really is the story of the book of Acts. That kind of covers it all right there. That um, that's what we've seen right from the beginning. The apostles wait in the upper room. Holy Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost, draws a crowd. They start speaking in all these other languages, draws a big crowd. And Peter, they're in Jerusalem. Peter bears witness, right? And, uh, and then last week we looked at... Paul going to the ends of the earth. We kind of looked at the same thing. Paul doing the same thing. He finds himself in Athens. He can't quote Old Testament Bible verses or sing psalms, right? But he goes to in Athens, so he just uses common human experience. And he shares the gospel by saying, bring the truth of the gospel, who Jesus is, what God has said to these people, this, this, all these philosophies of life that he saw in Athens. So the same thing, this pattern that we're seeing, these devoted disciples, empowered by the Holy Spirit, God gives an opportunity, and they bear witness. And so that's the pattern we've been seeing. So what we're looking at today, we're picking up where we left off, just like Bart said, you know, where we had left off last time was that Peter and John, they kind of got up probably the next day after Pentecost, most likely, and they just go where they're going to the temple just to worship, like they always have. And uh, so they're going up to the temple to worship, and the Holy Spirit like, heal that man in Jesus' name, Stand, sitting there at the gate. And so they heal him, and he's dancing, a guy who had been crippled from birth. And so he's dancing, it draws a crowd, and Peter, Peter preaches um, a sermon there, bears witness once again to Jesus, and just like, just like the mission calls us to do. And we'll see in today's chapter 4, verse 1, it starts with, and as they were speaking. And so I just wanted you to, to see where we are, is that we're picking up. It's right at that moment. Peter is preaching that sermon we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Peter's right there at that moment. He's preaching that sermon, and this is what happens. This group of temple leaders walk up. And so to remind ourselves, we need to remember what Peter was saying, because this is what drew the the people this is why they walked up this is what was causing the commotion so really quickly look at if you have your bibles there acts chapter 3 just previous to what we're so acts chapter 3 kind of peter's sermon is like verses 11 down to 16 and i'm just going to paraphrase it but uh you can see it there in your bibles 
And these are the things that he, what were the things he emphasized in his sermon? What was this, these things he was speaking to the people? Well, it was this, he, he, um, that he heals the heal, the, the, the lame man, the crowd's going, Peter, you got superpowers or something. He's like, no, 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 I don't. This was God's doing God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the one that did it through his servant, Jesus, through his servant, Jesus. And then he gives these, these describes who Jesus is. He's the, he's the holy and righteous one assigns to him divine name, right? Jesus is God in the flesh, right? So the holy and righteous one, the author of life and the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied about that was the Messiah that was going to come. That's the Jesus that healed this man. And, and then he goes right to the heart, right? He's like, Jesus, whom you crucified, whom you crucified, he says to the crowd, because they probably would have been in that, a lot of them would have been in that crowd that was yelling, crucify him, crucify him, right? Whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. And it's by faith in his name that this man is made well. So Peter's, just get it, Peter's literally, that's the scene. Peter's literally standing there with the guy clinging to him, it says. The guy's clinging to him as he's proclaiming that when we enter, we get to our passage for today. And as they were speaking, those words, the people, to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. And so what we're going to see today and what our, our point, what we're going to try and get out of here is this is the first time where they're going to receive opposition to this gospel. I mean, they're only a couple days in, so it happened pretty quick. But this is the first time that they're going to have people opposed. Here they are preaching the gospel to all these people being saved. And yet the temple guards and the Sadducees and the chief priests show up. There's a disruption in the temple. And so what do we do? What do we do when the message, the gospel message that we're sharing, that we get opposition to it? How do we respond? And so that's what we're really going to look at today. We're going to see how Peter and John responded to it. Okay. Um, so pick up right, right there, verse 1, who are these, these people who have come? So these would have all been, these are the people who take care of the temple. They would have all been Levites. If you know from the Old Testament, it was the tribe of Levi that was, that was given the, the job of taking, doing all the religious worship. So all the priests were Levites, but all the temple guards would have been Levites. All the people that swept the floors and kept the place maintained would have been Levites. They did all the jobs. It was their job to oversee everything that happened in the temple. And so when there's a disruption, a disturbance, some, a commotion, something going on, they're going to be the ones to check it out. And so that's what happened. And so they go over there. And then it mentions that they were Sadducees. So back then, there was kind of two main sects of, of um, Judaism at the time, or in our day, we'd probably call them denominations if it, was, if it was us, so I'll just use that word. Kind of two denominations within Judaism, okay? There was the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Um, the, the, the Sadducees, they kind of had different doctrine, both believed in, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and that, but the two different doctrines, um, that they followed. So the Sadducees, their main distinctive was that they didn't believe in the resurrection. Okay. They didn't believe there was an afterlife. They kind of, they really focused in on just the five book, first five books of the Bible, Moses law. That's what they really focused on. The rest of the old Testament, they kind of just, they held it a little more loosely, um, and the way they lived was basically they, they saw like the coming kingdom and the Messiah and all that is more symbolic. And so they saw that the era that they were living in right then was 
was their, their goal was to follow the law, and if you follow the law, God blesses you. Well, for them, it was just the nation of Israel. That's all they cared about. They didn't care about anybody else. So if the nation of Israel followed God's law, then God would bless them. And so that was kind of their way of life, okay? And they saw there's different messianic figures that came in, and there'd be different ones that kind of helped to, to do that, to promote that. So that's what they kind of followed. The Pharisees, the Pharisees were um, much more, followed, they looked at the whole Old Testament, and they very much more looked at that there was a future golden kingdom, God restoring Israel, and there's a future final messiah king that was going to restore it and so they looked more that way and the pharisees they believe that if they if all of israel could just follow god's law for one day perfectly if they could just do that the messiah would come and so the pharisees are the one that added the other 640 more rules on top of god's law because they wanted people to follow it because the the bible says you know obey the sabbath and they're like well what does that mean how do you do that okay well they make a rule for how many steps you could take you had to count your steps on a sunday they didn't have fitbits either so so you had to you had to count your steps you could how you could prepare your food like you know this was work and this wasn't you could do this but not this they had all these rules they added to it so that was the pharisees okay so here we have the sadducees the sadducees were pretty much all definitely all the high priest family at this time most of the priests most of the like the elite in jewish at the time were all sadducees okay so that's why it kind of mentions it the, the majority vast majority of this group that comes up to jesus are from these these sadducees remember they don't believe in the resurrection they don't believe in the resurrection that's going to be important and what happens now they were greatly annoyed or your your bible might say disturbed because they, Peter and John, were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus, what? The resurrection from the dead, right? So this is why. So they're annoyed. Two reasons why they're annoyed. One, because they're preaching, teaching the resurrection from the dead. Sadducees don't believe in that. So that, that bugs them. Cause... But the second is just the fact that they're teaching it all. In Jewish culture back then, to be a teacher, to be a rabbi, if you've heard that word, was like the highest honor. You, you had to be the top student of the top student of the top student to be able to get up to the level where you could be the disciple. That's what, where disciples came from, was a follower of a rabbi. But only the best of the best of the best of the best males got to be these disciples to be a teacher, right? And so you had to be that. And they're looking at Peter and John going, you're fishermen. You're the bottom of the totem pole. You are at the bottom. They're at the top. You know what I mean? What's going on? You shouldn't be teaching. Now, there wasn't a law against it. It wasn't illegal, wrong for them to teach in the temple, but it was really, really looked down upon. So, so they're, they're upset about those two things, and they felt that they had the authority and the responsibility. They wanted to control everything that happened in the temple, and so they're not happy about it. So they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day because it was already evening. So this here, we, they arrest them. Why? Because it's, it's already evening, like it says, and we're going to see that they're going to pull them before like the Jewish high court. It was called the Sanhedrin. So the next day, that's their plan. They're going to actually pull Peter and John into like a trial at the Supreme Court for, for doing this, for teaching in the temple, and for proclaiming the resurrection of the dead. And so they can't do that that night. They need time to pull the court together, and so they're going to put them in jail overnight. Um. Now, it's kind of interesting. You just look at that. Like, did Peter and John actually do anything wrong at this point? Did they actually deserve to be put on trial, at the, at, <laughs> pulled before the high court? No, 
right? What, what was their crime? They healed a crippled man from birth, right? That was their crime. And people said, how did this happen? And they explain it, right? This is how it happened. This is who did it. In Jesus' name, God healed this man. And so that's their only crime. And yet they're going to get, get they're basically, they're arresting innocent men and holding them overnight um, in jail so that they can pull them before this trial the next day. Does that sound familiar at all? When's the last time we encountered this Sanhedrin? Right? The last time we encountered this Sanhedrin, less than 60 days before this happened, that same group, that same Jewish high council, was arresting Jesus for what? Teaching in the temple. And they, they put him in prison overnight. They arrested him in the middle of the night, but until the next morning, right? And then they have this council, an innocent man, right? What do you think Peter and John are thinking? Doesn't that give you... I was studying, I thought, oh, man, that changes things. I was trying to put myself in the story. As Peter and John, that's fresh in your mind, of course, what they did to Jesus, right? And here you are standing before the same court, same thing happened. You were arrested for teaching in the temple. You get put in prison. You know what happened to Jesus. And now you're in that same position. And then verse 4, I just like this. Luke kind of, the author of the book of Acts, the historian who wrote the book of Acts, he adds this in in verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. And uh, so it's just kind of a neat, Luke just puts that in there just so we know. So all that preaching that Peter and John did before they were arrested, that's the result. So they're still, the people are still like just amazed at what happened. I mean, this, we're amazed. That's a big number, men. The number came to 5,000. But really, like, shouldn't we, shouldn't that be the result when God has proven the Messiah has come and he's showing his power? It's like, I'm in, right? And so that's what happens and, uh, and he knows that I just like Luke too is a master of the Greek language. And so your, your translation might say many who heard the message, um, the, the ESV is the word and the word is actually the, the, probably the right. It's the same one that John uses in John one, you know, the word came referring to Jesus. And so I just mentioned that it's just really, really neat that Luke would use. That. I just mentioned that just because they weren't just believing the facts. They weren't just going like, oh, okay, we believe the facts about Jesus. They were believing in Jesus. They were entering into a relationship with him. And I just love how Luke likes to make things like that clear through the language he uses. So there's kind of what's happened, okay? So now, next morning, verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. So now the group's been expanded. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the high court along with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So now we've got the whole, the Sanhedrin was made up of 71 of these rulers. So it was that, those priests, the high priests, the ones that we saw the day before, okay, that same group, plus some Pharisees as well. The elder, most of the scribes would have been more of the Pharisee persuasion. Most of them. It wasn't a hard, 
black and white, but, but so now you have elders of the diff- some of the different groups, the tribes within Judaism. So you have these elders. You also have the scribes as well as the high priests, and that made up this Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin. And they, they met, this plot where they met was in the temple complex, and it was kind of like a big amphitheater kind of semicircle. So when it says in the midst, you're literally kind of in the center, and it was Peter and John and the crippled man. We'll see in verse 10, you'll see that the crippled man was right there standing before them as well. So I'm guessing he got detained too. And so he got, he got put in jail for being healed. That's kind of, but uh, um, we're making that an assumption. But he's, he's there the day before and he's there the next morning with them. So, um, and so they're, they're literally put in their midst. And then they ask him this, they ask, the high court asks um, this question, by what power or by what name did you do this? This is what they're on trial for. They're before the Supreme Court of Israel. And what's their crime? They want to know whose name did you heal this guy in? Now, it's kind of a silly question because we know they already know the answer because that's what they were annoyed and disturbed about, right? They walked up while Peter was saying those things and he was clearly saying, Peter's whole sermon was, this guy was healed in Jesus' name by faith in his name is why he's standing before you healed and you crucified him and God raised him from the dead. And so they've already heard this. That's what annoyed them. That's what got them arrested. So it's pretty clear they're not, this isn't a fact-finding trial. So what's going on here? It's a challenge of authority, right? It's, it's a dare. I mean, just picture, that's why Peter and John are standing there before them. And this, the same court that crucified Jesus for blasphemy, and they're saying, basically, I dare you to say whose name you healed him in. You saw what we did when the Jesus are you, going to, are you bold enough to speak his name? That's what it is. It's a challenge of authority to stand before the high court. They're trying to squash this thing out. I think that's, if we can apply that at all to our day, I mean, we're not pulled before governors and, and that yet. There are many Christians in the world today that this could be their reality. Speaking the name of Jesus could land them in a place where it's a life or death situation. Like Bart prayed, we are so blessed to be in a place where we can freely worship. Right? But there are still places, have you been in situations where you know saying Jesus' name or, or proclaiming the truth of what God says could create opposition or backlash? I mean, we believe certain things. We, if we take God's word to be true, which we do, church, we believe certain things about identity and sexuality and, and sanctity of life. And, like, and those things can, can create opposition when we claim those and we say those and believe those. Are we willing to be bold? And it's notice that it's even when even when, even though it's, they didn't actually do anything wrong, right? Like Peter and John, right? They, they, their, their crime was healing a man lame from birth. The Sanhedrin should be like, how did you do it? Because we want to join you. You know, that should be the response, isn't it? Like, don't they want to, wouldn't they want to see God work in powerful ways? And yet, because of what they're saying, because of the name of Jesus, they're unwilling to open up their hearts, to hear it. And so what do we do in those situations? 
What do we do when we're opposed? Let's see what Peter and John did. Verse 8. And the first thing shouldn't surprise us. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, right? We rely on the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing. When we're in a situation where we, we are opposed, right? Where the truth of the gospel, there's hearts that are hard, that are against it, rejecting it. We need to rely on the Holy Spirit. We can't convince them. No matter how good you are at arguments, right? What facts you know in your head, there's no way you can convince somebody. God needs to do a work in their heart. You need to let the Holy Spirit lead. And so we need to be listening and following. Sometimes he tells us to say or be quiet, open our mouth, shut our mouth. And sometimes it's how we speak. We'll see that. So the first thing, filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he addresses them, rulers of the people and elders. This, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Peter and John, one of the good things is that they're ready because Jesus said this would happen. And uh, it's back in, in Luke records it as well. I'll have it on the screen. You can turn there if you want. But Luke chapter 21, verses 12 to 15, Jesus said this is exactly what would happen. He was preparing Peter and John back then for this exact situation. Jesus has just finished teaching about end times, the end of the world, right? And then he follows it up with this. He says, but before all this, before the end of the world, they will lay their hands on you and persecute, persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You're in prison the night before. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake, behind, before rulers, Sanhedrins. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Isn't that awesome? So that's what's in Peter and John's mind. They're like, okay, Jesus said this was coming. Here's our opportunity. Do you ever look at it like an opportunity when you're opposed? <laughs> Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So that's interesting, isn't it? Jesus says, don't, don't meditate on what to say beforehand. Now, hear me, that doesn't mean we don't study, we don't think. You know, the Bible says, First Peter, where it says that, like, prepare, be prepared to have an answer for the hope that you have. Like, we need to be prepared. We study, we read, we know these things. We need to, ha- we need to be feeding on God's word, right? Why? Not because we have it all written out and we go in there like, okay, this is what I'm going to say. I got the perfect argument. This is what I'm going to say predetermined beforehand. But we have it in our mind and we're able, the Holy Spirit speaks through us when we know God's word, right? So yes, you study. Yes, you know. But you don't go in there with your predetermined plan of what you're going to say and this is how I'm going to really get them, right? You go in there with the Holy Spirit relying on him to stir in your heart the words of God that you're going to speak in that moment. And we're going to see Peter do that in a powerful way, powerful way. And they're not going to be able to withstand or contradict it. So back to Acts. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. I just think it's, see how he addresses them? That respectful way, right? He's, he's about to here to speak very, very boldly. But don't confuse boldness with harshness. Being bold doesn't mean that you're harsh. You know, you can be bold with gentleness. I think a Tim, or Paul teaching Timothy, this young pastor, and he says, reprove and rebuke with gentleness, right? If you can do that, we can do it. It's our tone. It's how do we go about it, and it's going to come down to our heart behind it. We're going to see that as we go through. But just remember that. Boldness doesn't mean harsh. 
Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says this. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, I'll finish it here in a second. I just wanted to pause there because what's, why, why does Peter start off that way? And I just love this because Peter starts off and he's just pointing out the facts. He's pointing out the facts that you have us, so you're saying that you put us in jail, kept us overnight, our, we're before the, the Supreme Court of Israel, and what's our crime? If our crime really is that we heal the guy and you just want to know whose name it is, all right, I'll tell you that name. Why does Peter start off that way? Because I think he's trying to expose what he knows is the real root problem, right? It's not that they, they don't know the information, what he's been teaching. That's not why they're on trial. He's pointing out to them, like, look at, there's a problem with your heart. This is a, a issue with your hearts. You're not listening to God, right? And so you're challenging, am I willing to speak the name of Jesus? Your problem was with the name of Jesus, not with us. But if you want me to speak the name of Jesus. And uh, I just thought for us, for our application, those things that, that can get us labeled hateful or, right, those things that people would oppose, right, that our actions should show that that's not the case. We should be able, just like Peter is able to point to, that we've done nothing wrong. We've actually done a good thing, this good deed we've done. We should be able to do the same thing. If we're being persecuted because we're mean and angry and hateful, we probably deserve it, right? But we should be able to point to and say, you, you're labeling us that, but look at the evidence. We love one another. We help. We serve. Look at the action. You're telling us this is what we are, but the evidence doesn't, doesn't line up with it, right? We should be able to do that. We should let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who's in heaven. Matthew five sixteen. The undeniable proof of God is a changed life. That's the other thing. Peter and John, they've got the crippled guy standing right here with them, right? They're able to say, look at them. Like they're standing in the midst of the court. You're, we're on trial for this. He's got a big smile on his face. That's what I picture, right? He's been dancing and jumping. Maybe he's a little worried right now, but... You know what I mean? And they're like, this is the evidence? You're saying this? There's something wrong with this? A man crippled from birth being made well? That's the evidence? And some of you have experienced miraculous healing, and that can be God can show his glory, and we can use that. God can use that to open a door for us to proclaim it. But you know what a greater miracle is than a man being able to walk after being lame from birth? A changed life, right? And that's our testimony. That's our testimonies. I was thinking of Janice, what she shared last week there, and, and that's Jim's testimony. I think it's called a changed life. Isn't that what she has it labeled? Where's Janice? Anyway, yeah, is that what you have it called? A changed life. That's what Janice has labeled her husband's name because giving it to her non-Christian family because she's going like, they can see it. There's no denying. You knew Jim before, you knew Jim after. This is the miracle standing before you. Don't, don't, don't reject it. Don't resist it. Here's the evidence. We should be able to say that as Christians. That's what Peter's doing. So he starts there, and then he proclaims boldly, let it be known to all of you, to all the people of Israel, not just you, Sanhedrin. I want, we want everyone in all of Israel to know this truth. 
that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, no ambiguity, no you know higher power talk or something like that. We're clear. It is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We're, we all know who we're talking about here. Whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter basically just sums up the sermon, what he said there, that the 5,000 people were saved by that same message. He's bold enough. You're challenging whether I'm bold enough to speak the name of Jesus. I am. And he speaks that name of Jesus boldly and reiterates the same thing that uh, he said before. And then he, he puts it right to the Sanhedrin, right to their heart. And he says, whom you crucified. That same court was the one that, that condemned Jesus to death. But God raised him from the dead, right? And he's again, he's trying to get to their heart. He's trying to point out the problem is with their heart. They're unwilling to, re, to accept Jesus. They, they crucified Jesus for blasphemy. But Jesus said, they're going to kill me and I'm going to come alive again in three days. And he did it. And then what did the Sanhedrin have to do then? The same ones, the same chief priests, they had to pay off the Roman guards, Right? They had to tell them, they had to make up a lie, the disciples stole a body. They have to start adding lies on top of lies on top of lies. As the mountain of evidence grows on one side, their lies grow on the other one. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. We, don't, we need to believe that's where these, God shows you and reveals himself to you. Don't, don't continue to harden your heart against it. And that's what Peter's trying to point out that they're doing. And then... He does that with this, quoting this verse, verse 11, says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. We sang it this morning. So this is Peter's text for his sermon, okay, before the Sanhedrin. And it's pretty, Peter's now preaching at them. They've pulled Peter before them to be on trial, and he's flipped the tables on them. He's now, just like Jesus did in the temple, just thought of that. And, uh, and he's flipped the tables and he's now preaching at them. And so he quotes this verse. And as I was studying this, this was, I thought Peter was bold until I got into the study this week. And uh, I hope it amazes you as much as it amazed me. I got so much more respect for Peter. But he quotes this verse from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about the coming Messiah. It's the psalm where when Jesus rode in in the triumphal entry and they were singing Hosanna, that what they were singing was that Psalm 118, okay? It's from the same Psalm that, this, this also, that Peter's quoting here. But it's not the first time that the Sanhedrin has heard this, this verse quoted. This is what blew my mind. The first time they heard it was in Matthew 21. And so you can turn to your Bibles. We'll be there for a minute. So turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. This is the first time that the Sanhedrin would have heard it quoted to them. And I think this is why Peter picked it. Why would Peter pick that to be his text for his sermon to the Sanhedrin? Well, if you just look, I don't know if your Bible has little titles in it or not, but just to kind of see where it is. So this is Matthew 21. Is Matthew recording the triumphal entry? Jesus riding into Jerusalem for the Passover, right? And he's riding in in the triumphal entry. And they're proclaiming him to be the Messiah. And he gets into Jerusalem and he goes to the temple. And what happens? You'll see verse, verse 15. I'll just point out a couple of these. I don't know if I have a scripture there. Nope. We'll get there in a second. Verse 15, you'll see it's the same ones, the chief priests that are there. And they're criticizing Jesus because the people are proclaiming him as Messiah. And he's, they're going, you should stop that. 
but you see it's the same people, right? Then he goes and he starts teaching in the temple, which we know they don't like. In that same group, verse 23, the chief priests and the elders, and they want to know, they start hammering them, whose authority do you have to teach in the temple, Jesus? Right? And so how does Jesus respond? Well, he tells two parables. You'll see the first one starting at verse 28. The first parable is about two sons. And a father comes to these two sons and says, um, you know, go do this thing. The first son just flat out refuses. No, I'm not going to do it. Right? The second son says, yeah, I'll do it, but then doesn't do it. Right? So the first, but then the first son who said he wasn't going to do it does do it. Hey, you got two sons. One said they wouldn't, but did it. Said they would, but didn't do it. Okay? Then he goes to the, he says to the Pharisees, he's like, which one did the will of God? And they're like, well, the one that with their mouth said they wouldn't, but ended up doing, actually doing the thing. It's the one who did the work is the one who actually did the will of God. And Jesus' point is, you, you leaders of the temple, you use all the words. You say you're going to follow God and he's, your, he's the authority and you're going to follow him and obey him. And yet you're not, though. With your lives, though, you're not being obedient to God. But the very people who you criticize, the outcasts, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, those ones, they're the ones that even though you look at them and they go, hey, they don't say they're going to obey God. When they encounter Jesus, they're willing to, to do it, to follow him. And so that's his first parable. Then he goes on to the second parable. And if you know this parable, this is where Jesus is going to quote that same verse, the, the stone, the cornerstone verse. The second parable, again, I'll just paraphrase. The second parable is about a master who represents God, who plants a vineyard, represents Israel. And he hires these tenants to take care of the vineyard. Okay, That represents the chief priests and the elders, this Sanhedrin court. But that same leaders of Israel, they, get, they want to throw off, they decide that they don't want to be under the authority of the master anymore. They want to be in charge themselves. And so they reject the authority and the ownership of that vineyard of the master. And so the master sends some servants, represents the prophets, sends servants to them to say, hey, you need to follow. And what do they do? They reject the servants. They beat them. Some of them they kill, just like the leaders of Israel did with many of the prophets in the Old Testament. And then Jesus ends it with, in the end of this parable, ends this way, what's on the screen. Finally, that master sent his son. Who's that? Jesus. To them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Remember, this is Jesus speaking before they arrested him. Right? That's what Jesus said to them. And then he follows it up with this. Then that was part of the parable. Now Jesus interprets it. He's speaking to the same group that Peter's speaking to. And Peter was probably there with Jesus, so he heard all this firsthand, which is why I think he picked the same verse. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? Here it is. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Yeah, they were, he was. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. You imagine, Peter? Put yourself back in Acts chapter 4. 
Peter gets pulled. He's got this opportunity to witness. Jesus has said, this is what's going to happen. After I leave, you're going to be pulled before councils for, on sake of my name. Literally what happened. He heals someone in Jesus' name, and because of that, gets pulled before the governors, the rulers. It's going to be your opportunity to bear witness. Peter's standing there, okay, what do I say? Holy Spirit, what do I say? What do I say? And I believe that this passage came to mind, right? He's talking to the same people Jesus talked to. Jesus, the one who warned them and said, this is what's going to happen. God is going to send his son. You're going to reject him. You're going to kill him. And the kingdom's going to be taken away from you. And it's going to be given to those that are producing fruit. This is, Jesus told them ahead of time what they were going to do. And now Peter's standing in front of them and saying, look it, this is what Jesus said was going to happen. And now you can see it standing in front of you. You did what Jesus said you were going to do. You, the son, he, God sent the Son of God. And you killed him and rejected him. But God raised him from the dead. And now you're standing here in the evidence of the fruit those who are actual children of God that have received the Messiah, the fruit is standing right here. God's power made a lame man whole again, and you're still not willing to accept it? This is what God said, just what Jesus told you he's going to do. And look at that, what he's, he's saying. Think of the minds of the Sanhedrin. They're going, God said the kingdom of God would be taken away from you and given to Peter and John and the rest of the disciples, the church of Jesus, the body of Christ, that's who it's going to get given to. They will become the temple. Talk about boldness. Talk about boldness. And so Peter says all that. I mean, imagine being in that room, just like a pin drop. I mean, (laughs) wow. But I want us to note here, we're back in Acts chapter 4. I hope you kept your finger there. Back to Acts chapter 4. And this is where we see the heart. That Peter speaks with that level of boldness, right? No regard for himself. That level of boldness. But it's not to make them the enemy, right? He's not condemning them. He's inviting them because he ends it with this. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, what a powerful, he's standing before, he's flipped at his tables, he's now preaching to the Sanhedrin, and he's saying, God's giving you opportunity after opportunity. Think of God's grace towards you, Sanhedrin. The very Messiah stood in front of you, and you denied him, and you had him crucified. But God's now giving you another chance. God's grace is amazing. Here you are. You have the opportunity. God has proved it. He raised him from the dead. He's now showing his power through Jesus' name. Come on. Come join. Come join. Come be a part of God's kingdom. But if you don't, that same stone is going to crush you. That's what that passage back, back in Matthew said, right? It's going to be taken away from you. It's an invitation. Come. And for us, this is the invitation. When we, this is what shows the heart. When we are in situations where we're opposed, the most important thing is that our heart's desire is that they would come to know Jesus. It's an invitation. Whatever the dialogue is, whatever it is you say and you proclaim boldly, but you say whatever you planning, whatever you say, it's out of a heart of an invitation. We want them to come to know Jesus. This 
your life will be so much better. We want you to be part of this kingdom. Please come join us. Come join us. I just thought it's just such a, this, this Sanhedrin's heart, the hearts of that council is such a picture of our human nature, that sinful nature that resists God. Just think about it. Why do we resist God? We're, like we talked about last week, we're all searching for answers in this life, right? We're all searching for hope when we go through the difficulties. We're searching for where do we come from and what's meaning and purpose and what happens when I die. And God has come and he said, look it, I will give to you eternal life freely. You don't have to earn it. There's nothing you can do to earn it, right? I'm offering it to you freely. I'm inviting you into relationship with me and i've provided the way through my son jesus he's already paid the price he's already taken the punishment we're simply inviting you to come and to enter into that relationship that's the invitation and yet so why do we resist that why isn't it like yes and amen right why do we resist that because just like the sanhedrin we want control We want to stay the authority in our own life. We don't want to have to give that up and acknowledge that there is a God. Or maybe like the Sanhedrin, they they had their theological box that they could make sense of. And so the resurrection of the dead, well, that's kind of far-fetched and they didn't want to believe in it. And so they rejected Jesus because, well, we just won't believe in the resurrection of the dead, even when they have to make a lie to cover it up. Today, if we acknowledge who Jesus is and say that we believe that by faith people world's going to look at us weird yep they will you really believe he came God put on flesh died rose again yeah that takes a step of faith that takes a step of faith but that's exactly what God is calling us to and uh the belief I, I was kind of pondering on this one this week just this that God puts so much evidence of himself out there. You know, there's so much evidence, and not only the evidence that he gives all of us creation and everything else, kind of what we talked about last week, but he reveals himself. If you'd open your eyes, God is looking to reveal himself in everybody's life. And in every instance where God is, is, is revealing himself, you have a choice either to harden your heart and reject him, to make up some excuse to justify it in some way, to push him away, or you have the opportunity to open yourself up and to take a step towards him. That's the the choice we have as humans. But that step, God will never give you enough evidence to follow him based on the facts alone. It will always take a step of faith. Always. You're going to have to take a step of faith and it will always cost you something too. But the amazing thing is that when you take that step of faith, that you're going to find the assurance of a real relationship. You'll know what it is to have relationship with God. But until you're willing to take that step of faith, you're not going to experience that. That's just the truth. God requires you to take that step of faith. And so I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you've, have you taken that step of faith? Do you know him personally? Don't just know the facts. Don't just acknowledge the facts that they're true. But do you know him? Have you taken a step of faith where you believe in Jesus to be the Son of God, the Savior that took your sin. And if you don't know that for sure, I invite you, please don't harden your heart. You're not going to, get, you're not going to have answers to all your questions. You know? 
You're not going to get every question answered before you come to him. At some point, you're going to need to take a step of faith. There will always be more questions. Any Christians who have been doing this a long time still have questions? Yeah, <laughs> amen to that one. And it's kind of neat that we too have to do this, keep doing the same thing. Don't we have to walk by faith? We have to keep taking those steps of faith. And when we do, we experience the knowledge we know who he is, right? When the doubts come, we have to take a step of faith to get that assurance. Amazing. So please, we'd love to talk to you. If you haven't made that step, um, talk to somebody. Don't harden your heart like the Sanhedrin did. And then for us, as uh, those of us that are Christians as church, this verse is quoted one more time, and I'm just going to read it through as our closing. But it's in, it's Peter again. Three decades, three decades later, Peter is, uh, is writing a letter to a bunch of churches, and he's going to quote the same verse about the cornerstone again. And I just thought it was a perfect way to end for us. This is a, what do we do as a church? How do we take this message? What do we do when we're opposed? What's the posture we're to have? Listen to this. First Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 4. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, right? The world, much of the world has rejected Jesus, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones, being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's how Jesus is the, is the cornerstone. Everything we do in our Christian life is built on him. We don't go to a physical temple anymore. We don't, we don't have to go through a priest. We don't have to offer sacrifices. Jesus is the foundation for all of that. We can worship him because he's, he's in our hearts, right? We don't have to go to a priest. We are a holy priesthood. We have direct access to God boldly approach the throne. We don't have to offer sacrifices anymore. He, uh, he was the final sacrifice. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying as in Zion a cornerstone, chosen, as pre- chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Again, we can expect it. It's going to create stumbling and offense. This message of Jesus, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, children of God, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Here's what we're to do, church. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him. That's just another way of saying witness, right? Acts 1.8. Let me be witnesses who called you out of darkness a picture from last week, called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. There's your testimony, whatever your testimony looks like. There was a time when you were in darkness, before mercy, before being chosen people. And now you have a testimony that is, I'm in the light. I'm a chosen one of God. I've received that mercy. So beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Remember, church, we're, we're not going to fit in with the world. We're not, because we're not of the world anymore. We just have to know that. Don't try to. Right? Abstain, we're not citizens of this world anymore. Citizens of heaven. To abstain from the passions of the flesh with, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that 
so that when they speak against you as evildoers, not if, when it happens, it will happen, and they speak against you as evildoers, then they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Isn't that exactly what Peter and John did there? They had the good deeds standing right beside them. And even though they were speaking to them as, as evildoers, and for us, whatever they say, let our actions and our deeds, our conduct, be so honorable that we'll be able to point to that and say, no, this is what the truth and the love of God lived out looks like. Please come and join. Doers of the word this week, verse 13 to end it in Acts 4, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated, common men, the Greek word there is where we get idiot from, (laughs) they were astonished. And I love this. And they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. So simply our doers of of the word this week, let's live our lives in such a way there will be no denying that we've been with Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we pray for boldness. Um, We're going to see in in just a few chapters, just the end of this chapter 4 and coming weeks, that your church came together to pray for boldness as you stretch out your hand and do miraculous things and show your power and open doors and give us opportunity. May we see them, even when, when we have people who are opposed, we're in situations where people are opposed, might we have eyes to see those are opportunities to witness that you are giving us. Holy Spirit, in those moments, we pray for wisdom. We pray for the words to say. Lord, I pray for each interaction, for everyone here, Lord, the interactions that they're going to have this week with people. Lord, I pray for wisdom. I pray for the words to say that people might, that we might be able to show them the truth and invite them into relationship with you, Jesus, for there is salvation in no other name. And it's in that name we pray. Amen.